On Palm Sunday a few weeks ago, we had the opportunity to uh, look at how Christ is revealed in the Passover meal as Jews for Jesus shared that presentation with us. And then last week on Easter, we focused on the resurrected life that's found in Jesus, a new identity and new purpose granted to us through his resurrection. Well, this morning we're going to dive into a passage which bridges both Christ in the Passover and his resurrection. And while people often are fascinated by the story of the Last Supper and the establishment of communion, the preparation and purpose in taking it together is vital to our growth in Christ as individuals and as his church. And so this morning, we're going to actually stop along the way a few times throughout the message. And during that time, we're actually going to incorporate communion into the message this morning. But we're going to be looking at Mark 14 this morning. This is going backwards from last week a little bit because it's actually in preparation for his death and resurrection. But Jesus does this unique thing with his disciples. And so, if you'd stand with me, we're going to read from Mark chapter 14, looking at verses 12 through 26. It says this, it says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, or excuse me, and he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, It is I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Father, thank you for this wonderful gift that you've given us in communion. Father, thank you that you have made it clear is for us to both remember and to be encouraged and challenged by the taking of this communion. Thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice that you have granted through the cross, the death, and then, God, the resurrection. Yours, and completely and wholly your work. 
Father, this morning, may our hearts be settled before you and may you penetrate our heart deeply with your word. May we approach you with humility this morning. May the words that are spoken be with humility. And God, may you be glorified. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So the title of the sermon this morning is Remembering Communion, and it's really a play on words. Most of us don't necessarily have to remember communion, but the truth is, is that communion is not something that saves us. It's not a, a work of salvation in our lives. We don't take communion to experience God's salvation. However, we do take communion as a remembrance, a way of remembering what Christ has done. The other part of that is, is that it is important for us to remember that communion has more value than just the eating of a wafer and the drinking of juice. As a young child, I remember coming to Christ and, and my parents saying, now you get the opportunity to share in communion with us. I'm like, perfect, I get to eat during church. And that literally was my thought. Crackers and juice during church, fantastic, right? And so my parents went on to explain to me what communion was and why it was important. Well, at the heart of this passage this morning, communion does two things. And we see that throughout this passage. And so communion both exhorts and unifies Christ's church through the remembrance of His redeeming sacrifice. Communion exhorts and unifies Christ's church through the remembrance of His redeeming sacrifice. It really is a remembrance of His redemption. The redeeming love, the redeeming work of Jesus. So we've just come off of Easter and we, we get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But the truth is, every time believers gather is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. And every time we take communion together is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. Communion really is the first Easter celebration. And it occurs before the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus sets in place this very practice to remind us of the work that Christ has done. But more than that, He's done it to exhort us, to encourage us, to move us towards righteousness, to move us towards Him. And so in verse 12 it says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? The purpose of the Passover was to serve as a memorial to God's deliverance of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. That was the purpose of the Passover in the Old Testament. It was to be a, a remembrance, a memorial of God's deliverance. It was a time to celebrate the blessing of the promised land and to remind the Jews of God's promised Messiah who would bring restoration. 
Moses, in Exodus 12, verses 24 through 27, affirms this when he says, You shall observe this rite, that is Passover, as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And then verse 47 of Exodus there continues, All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. Now what was this Passover? This Passover was that Israel was was in slavery in Egypt. God looks to free His people and He brings upon ten plagues. In the midst of the first nine, Pharaoh's heart who has been hardened does not relent and let the people go. But on the tenth, the final plague is one in which the firstborn sons will die. The Israelites are commanded in that moment to take the blood of a perfect or spotless or unblemished lamb and to wipe it across the doorposts. And the angel of the Lord will bypass them and not kill their firstborn son. It is why Jesus is our Lamb of God. It is the fact that His blood has been sprinkled, shed forth for our sake. And so the Passover was reminding the Israelites of this work that God had done to redeem His people. And we're told in Exodus that the Egyptians wailed. The wailing in the land was so overwhelming because of the firstborn sons having all died. It was a precursor of what was come with Jesus. That we are all destined to death apart from God. But in Jesus, in in his death and resurrection, there is life to be found. He is our perfect Passover lamb. So in verses 13 through 15, Jesus then sends two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. Now think about that for a minute. You've been sent out into this city. You're looking for the place to repair communion, or prepare, excuse me, not prepare communion, but prepare the Last Supper, the Passover meal. And what happens? Jesus says, go out, look for this person. Now to us in our day, that seems very convoluted. Look for the guy carrying water. You find that today, it's everywhere. But the truth is, is that the carrying of the pitcher of water may seem relatively vague. But in Jewish culture, It was the women who carried the water. It was uncommon for a man to carry water. In fact, Brian Bell puts it this way. He says, it would have been like looking for the man carrying a purse. Now, in our culture, and I don't mean this necessarily to be funny, that has gotten a little confused. But you can kind of get my drift, right? It stood out as something different. Something not not, not, not something that you saw every day. 
And it would have been relatively easy for the disciples to figure out who Jesus was speaking of. And so once they saw this, this man carrying pitchers of water, we're told that they follow this man. And they do just as Jesus said. In fact, everything that Jesus said that would happen, happens. They go and they follow this man and then they find the master of the house and the master of the house has a room prepared for them and the scripture tells us they found it just as it was. Just as Jesus said it would be. Now, they've gone upstairs, they've prepared this meal, and we're told that the twelve, that is the remaining ten, the twelve is just another word for the disciples, arrive. And it says, when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now notice the disciples' response here. Verse 19 tells us they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? Is it I? Now why are the disciples sorrowful? Well, they've just witnessed Jesus providing exactly what he said. They just saw how Jesus actually told them where to find the man, where to find the room. They've witnessed how he's brought this about, and now he's telling them one of them will betray him. And they're grieving. And they begin to ask that question, is it I? They know their own hearts. And each disciple begins to seek understanding from Jesus. In reality, Jesus demonstrates how each of us need to prepare for communion. And so what we see here is we see three things that we need to walk through in preparation for the taking of communion. The first we see there in verse 19, and that is to humbly seek Christ and examine our heart for sin. Humbly seek Christ and examine our heart for sin. You see, the word sorrowful in Greek is the word lupeo. And lupeo carries with it this idea of to be in heaviness or distressed or grief. They loved Jesus, but they also understood their weaknesses. Aren't we the same way? We love Jesus, but we know our weaknesses. The difference here is that the disciples begin to ask that question. Is it I? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28 through 29 says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We're told by Paul in Corinthians to first examine ourselves. Here's the reason why. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Wow, that's powerful. We're not to take communion lightly. It's not this passive thing that we just show up for. It is a, a preparing of our own hearts and minds. It, it is God taking this opportunity to, to have us look and to examine our hearts and to reflect on areas of sin. 
to ask him, God, what are the areas of sin in my life that need to be revealed? It's kind of God's natural way of stopping us to reflect on him and on his grace. It's actually a grace to us. Communion is not only a grace to us in its remembrance, but it's a grace into us in its exhortation. It says you just can't keep going by. It's, a, a, it's like a stop sign. It requires us to look both ways and forward and backwards and say, is there anything that's coming that's dangerous? Is there anything present that's dangerous in my life? Unrighteous? Sinful? Is there some area where I'm not surrendering and submitting and I'm fighting with you, Lord? Job 34, 31 through 32 actually provides us with an excellent scripture to pray during this time. It says, For as anyone said to God, I have borne punishment, I will not offend anymore, teach me what I do not see. If I've done iniquity, I will do it no more. So our prayer can simply be, Lord, help me see the sin that's not right before my eyes. Show me so that I might not do it. We want to examine our hearts in this way before we take communion. The second thing then, if we're examining our hearts, is to confess and repent of revealed sin immediately. Confess and repent of revealed sin immediately. Repent immediately. An old saying, Delayed obedience is disobedience. When we know what God is calling us to do, and yet we refuse to surrender it to Him, we refuse to acknowledge Him as Lord, that still is disobedience. God wants us to surrender to Him now. And the preparation of our heart, communion is an opportunity for that to be exhorted in us, for the, the Word of God and the reminder of Christ's death and resurrection to exhort us towards righteousness. There's an urgency. We're kind of slow moving when it comes to sin, aren't we? We kind of think about it a little bit. We can do these kind of numbers, like... Is it really sin? Is it, is it really? Let me share with you, if you're asking that question, it probably already is. <laughs> right? Sin in our heart, we know when something is sinful. We know when the Spirit of God is convicting our hearts to be walking in obedience with Him or to be moving away from something. So those questions, those little qualifiers are good examples that we're probably heading in the wrong direction. But when God reveals sin to us, we need to immediately repent of it. Don't delay. Confess it. Repent of it. The Lord already knows. But we confess that sin and we repent of it immediately. See, regardless of the depth of the effects of our sin, Jesus' grace is completely sufficient. It does not matter how deep and dark our sin may be. Jesus' grace is fully sufficient for each of us. And Jesus' grace, because it is fully sufficient, doesn't mean 
that I just live in my sin and never confess and repent of it. It means that I am a repenting person. I bring it before the Lord and I'm confessing it. I'm repenting of it. Why? To put it before the Lord, to turn from it, to remind it of the power that the cross is a result of my own sin. Jesus bore the penalty of my sin on the cross. And yet, through his death and then his resurrection, he overcomes the power of death. You see, after Jesus shares that one of his disciples is going to betray him, he says, it is one of the twelve, one, one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And what we saw a few weeks ago, if you recall, is that dish that they're talking about is the bitter herbs. Rich used horseradish. And that horseradish was to remind people of the suffering and the bondage of the slavery that they experienced in Egypt. And that horseradish reminds us too of the bondage that we're in when we're slaves to sin, not slaves to righteousness. And it's interesting. It's interesting that Jesus makes this point. He says, it's one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now I want you to imagine this picture for a moment. They're leaning back. We know that each person is leaning back on the person to their left at the table. That's how they reclined. We know from the other passages, John, that John was leaning against Jesus' chest. What's more important about this passage is it tells us who Jesus is leaning on. Jesus is leaning back into Judas' lap. The one who will betray him. And it is because of that that Judas is able to reach over the shoulder of Jesus and dip into the cup. Even in this moment, Jesus is essentially saying to Judas, I know you've betrayed me, but it's not too late to repent and believe in me for your salvation. That's the Savior that we serve. Leaning against the chest of the one who would betray Him. Little did Jesus know in that moment that that cup was going to represent His eternal suffering. And that Jesus was going to take the weight of that suffering for all mankind. So that for those who put their faith in Him would not have to suffer the same death. Eternally apart from God. See, even in this moment, it was a fulfillment of God's Word, proving that Jesus is the one true Messiah. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I've trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. It was one more way of showing that Jesus is the Messiah. And then third, the first is we're to examine our own hearts with humility. The second is that we are to confess and repent immediately. And the third is that we are to trust that God fulfills His Word in Christ. 
both his redemption and his judgment. So as we consider communion, as we prepare our hearts, we need to trust God that he fulfills his word in Christ, both in his redemption, that Jesus is the answer for redemption of mankind, and he will also judge mankind for those that reject and rebel against him. He says here, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Do we see sin in that way? Do we understand that our own sin has betrayed God? And but for Jesus, we too would be like Judas. We too would have an eternity apart from God. See, Jesus fulfills God's word as the perfect Passover lamb. For those who trust in Christ and His saving work on the cross, His forgiveness and righteousness have been imputed to us. He became sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We saw that last week. God doesn't simply forgive our sin. He then gives us His righteousness. Positionally, He makes us holy in the presence of God, in the face of God. Because who? Because Jesus is seen within us. For those who reject Him, you will experience His judgment. It's not a question. It's a declarative statement. And we need to deal with that honestly. Do we want the forgiveness and righteousness of God so that we might be redeemed in His presence eternally? Or do we want to reject Him remaining in our way, in our pride and an eternity apart from Him? in the torment and judgment of God. So as the fulfillment of the Old Covenant, then Jesus establishes communion as this reminder and exhortation of the New Covenant in Him. What I'd like us to do is just stop here. In the silence of the next three to four minutes, I'd like you to just do those three things. Humbly examine your heart before the Lord. Then, if God reveals sin in your life, confess and repent of it immediately. And if nothing is revealed, thank Him and praise Him for His righteousness. And then trust God, knowing that He is the fulfillment, His promises, whatever doubts may arise. Whatever sin may seem too deep, too far, too gone, whatever circumstance that you're wrestling with, it's fear, whatever it may be, hand it to Him knowing that all of His fulfillment is found in Jesus. For those that are serving communion, I ask that you'll come forward. For others, I ask that you just stay where you're at and that you take these moments and reflect. And then we'll be taking the communion elements together in just a few moments. But as we've talked about the fact that 
Communion is both remembrance and a unifier. It is one that exhorts us in Christ. It exhorts and points us towards Jesus, but it also unifies us in Jesus as the body. And the purpose of communion is to remember three things. The first that we, thing that we see is that it's a remembrance of his body. In verse 22, it says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take this is my body. Take this is my body. In 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21, we just mentioned this verse, but we are instructed to be ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, and that we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For what reason? For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are to remember Christ's body, Christ's sinless life, sacrificed for our sin and in that body overcame death. We're to remember that his body was sacrificed. His body was sacrificed for our sake, for our sin, and that in it he overcame death. One of the great miraculous miracles is the resurrection, is it not? that God raises Jesus from the dead. And in so doing, He overcomes the power of death. What's even greater that we don't spend a lot of talking about is can you imagine seeing Jesus that day? You would have no other realm but to look and say, this is the Messiah. Nobody can recover from what He just went through in two days. Or in a day. And yet he is healed supernaturally. A new body. Jesus revealed in glory. So we're to remember his body. And so in the same way, we take this wafer to remind us of his body which was broken for us, the very blessing that was given to us. And so Lord, together in your name we bless you because of your body which has been sacrificed for us. May this be and may it be so. Let's eat together. The second remembrance is his blood. And his blood is the basis for the forgiveness of our sin because blood shed on the cross satisfies God's wrath against sin. Blood shed. That's what the blood is about. It's blood which was shed for us. The forgiveness of sin because through the blood shed on the cross, God's wrath is satisfied against us. 
It says, and he took a cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of covenant, which is poured out for many. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. John MacArthur adds, the old covenant could be written constantly in aminal blood because it was only a covenant of promise. It consisted of promise. The new covenant is fully satisfied in the blood of one lamb, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Christ, because it consisted not of promise, but of fulfillment. The actual purchase of our redemption was made by Christ, and He paid the price for the redemption of all the people who were before Him, all the way back to Adam. It was a fully sufficient sacrifice. And so we take that. And God, we thank You for the blood which was shed for us. We thank You that You went on our behalf and took the penalty of our sin and shed Your blood so that we might have forgiveness of sin. Not once, but once for all. Completed and finished. May it be so. And may we drink this together. At this time... We're going to declare a song of thanksgiving together, a song of thankfulness. And so the worship team is going to come up. We're going to sing this song together, and then we're going to wrap up just with a brief point and then finish with another song. But use this time as a time to reflect on the body and blood of Jesus with a heart of thanksgiving. There is a third thing in that reflection and declaration. And so we've seen his body and we've remembered his blood. But there's a final piece that Jesus points out. And that final piece is his reign. His reign. Not his physical reign, R-A-I-N, but his reign, R-E-I-G-N. It is the very promise of Christ's return. And so I'm going to switch those words on you in your notes. It should be his return and reign. It is the essence of our salvation. Notice what Jesus says. He says, truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So much of the gospel declaration is about Jesus' death and resurrection. And it has to be. Because it's what it saves us. The forgiveness of sin through his death paying the full penalty of our sin, and then the resurrection, overcoming the power of death, and giving us new life. 
But his promise is that he will reign in a kingdom of his people. And that we will have life eternally with this loving, gracious king. And it is the part of the gospel that often in our day, in our age, is often the minimized or forgotten piece. We share about the need for forgiveness. We share about the redemption through the resurrection. But I would encourage us to go one step further. To declare the promise of his return and reign. Throughout the scripture, the gospel is not void of his return and reign. It is as much a part of his death and resurrection. Because it is the promised work of his death and resurrection. Life eternal with God. And so, not only do we have new life and forgiveness of sins, but we have fellowship with him. Throughout the sermon, there's been an image up on the board, remember me. Remember me. And the purpose for communion is to remember him. To remember him. We need to know that communion together brings worship and unity in Christ. It is the very thing that helps us as the body, that unifies us in the body. Why? Because as we look out amongst one another and we see differences amongst one another, the great equalizer is we are all sinners in need of grace. And for those who put their faith in Christ and applied His blood to their lives through faith, we are all His. And we will all be part of His future kingdom and reign. That's the beauty of communion. It both exhorts us towards righteousness and it unifies us through His remembrance that there is not one of us who's without need of forgiveness of sin. There is not one of us who's without need for salvation. And there is not one of us who is able to experience life apart from Jesus. Not one of us. And so for wherever we come from, whatever we struggle with, whatever we wrestle with, regardless of how bad it's been or how good it's been, we're all in the same boat. Sinners in need of God's grace who become saints who sin through God's grace, who rejoice over the future that we have in His kingdom together. Amen? Amen. 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 My hope this morning is that you find joy in communion. That it is not just something that we rotely take, but we see that God is using it to both exhort us in Him and to unify Him as His church in Him. Knowing His death 
his resurrection, and his future return. Lord God, thank you for the wonderful gift of communion. Thank you for the work that you've done on the cross through your sacrifice and through your resurrection. Father, thank you for the promise that we will be with you one day, that you will return for us establishing your kingdom, one of perfect holiness rooted 